Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a cool, sunny, and slightly hazy day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, revisiting a landmark study comparing the health outcomes of vaccinated children and adults to their unvaccinated counterparts. The results of this study are more important now than ever as the world faces tyrannical medical mandates and forced injections of experimental and unproven genetic therapies. Joining us again for this episode is Greg Glazer. Greg is a health freedom lawyer based in Northern California. He is the lead counsel for the Control Group, a landmark study comparing the health outcomes of the unvaccinated versus vaccinated Americans. The Control Group has filed federal litigation to support the right of the individual to remain unvaccinated. He is also the general counsel for the Physicians for Informed Consent, a nonprofit organization opposed to vaccine mandates. Greg was recently called a human vaccine encyclopedia for his work with the litigation team opposing the University of California's mandatory flu shot. He is passionate about organic living and the Constitution of the United States. For those of you that missed the original episode featuring Mr. Glazer, that episode is available at number 43. Greg, welcome back to the show. As always, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. I'm so pleased to be here with you. Fantastic. So, Greg, for the listeners that may have missed our original episode, uh, maybe you could bring everyone up to speed on the purpose of the control group litigation. Sure. The control group is something unprecedented. It is the largest study of unvaccinated Americans that we have. And all of this data is pre-20, is pre-COVID. So what we did is we looked at the health outcomes, the medical diagnoses of 1,482 unvaccinated Americans. That's a massive number. It's such a large number of unvaccinated Americans that it gives us above 99% confidence in our results. That is a, that's a confidence interval, above st- statistically above 99% confidence. And what we found is that, and, and we also have graphs that go into more detail on what that confidence interval is for anyone who really likes to get nerdy like, like I do. And the, the, uh, the data showed that the unvaccinated are the healthiest people on the planet. In, in many cases, they're 40 times healthier than the vaccinated. That's not 40% healthier, that's 40 times, which is 4,000% healthier. And we looked at, uh, first for data gathering, um, we use the same techniques used by the United States Census to gather their data, which is you give the parents a questionnaire, a health questionnaire, and you ask them to list their medical conditions, their medical diagnoses, and then you ask them, you know, how confident are they that their answers are correct? So we tally that virtually every parent said that they have complete confidence, a 10 out of 10 of their, in their, in their uh, reporting. And the, uh, then, so then what we did is we took the data, we gave it to the experts, you know, the PhDs, the doctors, and said, you know, did this data follow the, the standard methodology for collection for statistical purposes and analysis? And we got multiple experts report, multiple expert reports confirming that our data is accurate, was well organized, collected properly, and so forth. So all of it's been vetted. And what it shows is that the unvaccinated are healthier in each of these categories that we looked at. Every single category we looked at, the unvaccinated are exponentially healthier. And I can give some examples. Um, 
And we'll start just overall with chronic illness. So chronic illness is the catch-all category for things that make life really hard on a day-to-day -day basis, like diabetes. You know, if you have diabetes, you know what it's. Michael, I'm going to guess that you don't have chronic chronic condition. You you, you look healthy. Um, the uh, but uh, chronic illness is things like cancer, autoimmune disorders, um, heart disease. These are these are they they're chronic. They stay with you. And they make life really hard. And so the background rate of chronic illness in America is somewhere between 60 to 80%, meaning 60 to 80% of all Americans have at least one chronic illness. That's absolutely shameful. By that measure, basically all of our public health employees should be fired and we should completely start over. Whatever they're currently doing is utterly and categorically failing because we didn't used to have those rates back in, back in the day. Which brings me to the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated have chronic illness rates closer to two to five percent, which is like a time machine back in to the 1950s when everyone was healthy. So the unvaccinated have completely avoided this problem of chronic illness in society, um, in the sense that they have the lowest rates of chronic illness out of anyone. And and what this means is that the unvaccinated have superior health. And when I say unvaccinated, what I mean is someone who has never received a vaccine in their entire life, who has never gotten the measles vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, obviously they've never gotten the COVID vaccine. And so that is the data. It is completely pure individuals, unadulterated individuals. And so um, what we found when we were collecting the data actually was kind of surprising that we were getting, we started getting surveys, these survey results, people were, you know, sending them to us um, from people who had received some vaccines, but they had, uh, they thought that unvaccinated meant they just hadn't gotten every vaccine. And so it just shows that, and that's what the CDC propaganda teaches people, that you're unvaccinated if you haven't followed their exact schedule, which is a completely perverse use of language. I mean, the, the proper term is partially vaccinated. So, so, so that was an initial issue, uh, you know, screening out the, um, you know, the survey results that didn't qualify for the survey. And another problem that we came across is, um, and we actually planned for the problem ahead of time was the results from mothers who were vaccinated during pregnancy. And these mothers, there's surprisingly many of them. They were vaccinated during pregnancy and then something happened where they woke up and then realized that they did not want to vaccinate their babies once the babies were born. So, but we look at the health of those babies born to, to mothers vaccinated during pregnancy and those babies look very similar to vaccinated babies. Uh. Very similar. They're, they have about half of the, of the, they later on develop half of the chronic illness is vaccinated which makes pregnancy vaccination an absolutely terrible choice for health outcomes. And we saw something similar with the vitamin K shot. As every mother knows who goes into the delivery room uh, to, to deliver a baby, after you deliver your baby, the nurses and the doctors, they will take your baby from you and then inject the baby with what's called a vitamin K shot. And that vitamin K shot contains benzoyl alcohol, 
which is a contraindication that liver, little baby liver cannot process that benzoyl alcohol. It contains aluminum in a high quantity. And these babies, again, what we found is that when we looked at babies or children who had received this vitamin K shot at birth, they also had a higher rates of chronic illness. So we calculated the exact numbers of this and put it all in our math charts and reports. It's all, it's all very well documented. And of course, our surveys for litigation purposes, which I think has a higher standard than peer review because we have to get multiple experts proven in court and so forth. And interestingly enough, two other studies were also published in the year 2020 that come to the same results as us, that the unvaccinated are the healthiest people on the planet. And, and what exactly are these, these numbers, you know, in addition to chronic illness? You know, one example is we looked at heart disease in adults. There's far fewer adults. We didn't have as many adults. We only had uh, 210 American adults who were completely unvaccinated and were able to participate in our study. Unvaccinated adults are hard to find. <laughs> I got to tell you, um, they are few and far between. Um, it's estimated that only about 0.26% of the population is completely unvaccinated. And most of those individuals are uh, so that's less than 1%. That's a fraction of 1% are completely unvaccinated. And of that group, most of those are children. And uh, all we ran the calculations for why that's true in our, in our reports. But um, anyway, we looked at heart disease uh, in adults. And what we found is that, so the background rate of heart disease among adults is 48% in America. 48% of Americans eventually develop heart disease compared to in our control group of unvaccinated adults, zero. What are the odds? It's so it's a perfect example of the coin flipping exercise where if you have a background rate of 50%, that's a coin flip. So heads, you have heart disease, tails, you don't. And then you survey 210 individuals and you get zero. Could you imagine flipping a coin 210 times and it comes up tails? every single time that is the odds that it could just be a random fluke that the unvaccinated just didn't have any heart disease but that's just one example we use that exact same example for everything we looked at diabetes was another example the background rate is 10 percent, but we found in our entire population zero diabetes in the unvaccinated the likelihood that that could be mere chance just random chance that just so happens that the unvaccinated had zero diabetes. We calculate that. And it is the, the odds of that happening by random chance are one in 64 with 68 zeros after. It's such a big number. It's, it's the kind of number you only use if you're measuring like starlight or something. You know, it's like this kind of things that CERN deals with. Actually, our numbers are even better than what CERN deals with for elementary particles. And even CERN doesn't deal with numbers this, this large. It, it, and it just proves, just categorically proves that the vaccines are causing these conditions. And we looked at even smaller things like digestive disorders. You know, you got a background rate of 18% in the vaccinated, but in the unvaccinated, it's less than 1%. That is a that is a massive difference. And, and the number is even, even lower if you exclude all the mothers who um, uh, were vaccinated during pregnancy. Once you take out that group, the numbers get even 
they, they get so small, it becomes comical. Just how obvious it is that vaccines are causing these problems like, like digestive disorders, which of course matches exactly our experience when we talk to doctors. That's what I do a lot. I work with doctors. Um, as you highlighted during the intro, I'm one of the lawyers for Physicians for Informed Consent on the General Counsel. And the doctors will tell you, first and foremost, that the unvaccinated are the healthiest people in their practices, hands down. It's not even close between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And they see a lot of these problems like digestive disorders, they see neuro, neurodevelopmental disorders. You know, it's all you have to do is you go into a doctor's office, a holistic doctor's office, an integrative doctor, and you look at their intakes, or even a conventional doctor, you look at their intake forms, and you can see all of the conditions, all the chronic illnesses that they ask. Do you have a history of this? Do you have a history of this? So they, they know what to look for, but it's the integrative doctors that really connect it to vaccination. Hmm. And so these issues manifest all over the entire body because vaccines affect your entire immune system. And so you see uh, neurodevelopmental, neurodevelopmental issues in the head as much as you see diabetes in the feet because it's the whole body that gets affected by vaccination, which is exactly what our study found. We found every single organ and every single body system was affected by vaccination to an exponential degree. Another example is um, asthma. You know, it's a lung condition. Uh, it's also immune mediated, incidentally. And the background rate of asthma in children is 7.5%. And the, but in the unvaccinated, we found again, less than 1% of asthma. So to kind of paint a picture of what this, what our study data shows and looks like, it looks like the unvaccinated took a time machine back to a time when folks were healthy, where the majority of people were healthy, where let's say you live on a street with 100 people that about only two of them would have any chronic illness whatsoever. Whereas today in America, if you live on a street with everyone vaccinated, one out of every two people has a chronic illness or more. Some of them have five chronic illnesses, which actually specifically 12% of all Americans have five chronic illnesses, which means you're dying. You're, you're, you're on death's door if you have five chronic illnesses. And that's more than 10% of the entire population. There's no way we can sustain these numbers. And our math team looked at that too. Where, where's the trajectory going? And what we found is that the chronic illness rate in Americans is doubling every 12 years. That's like, that's like meteor striking the earth level shocking that this is, it's so out of control, these chronic illnesses that we're reaching a point where nearly everyone in the country that's vaccinated is going to have a chronic illness and making life very hard, diminishing the workforce. The military is already putting out reports that they're having a terrible time, even staffing the military. That's how bad it is. This is an absolute national security issue. Which brings me to my case. I have a na national security case on behalf of military and civilian families. And we recognize and call out exactly what this is. This is a national security crisis where the country is being taken down slowly. It's the soft kill by pharma. And vaccines are not benefiting public health. And we're confirming that in our data that if there's no justification for this public health program that it's actually harming public health and threatening to destroy the nation, 
then how on earth can it be mandated? How on earth can they even even introduce these laws? They lack they lack even a rational basis. There's no rational basis to destroy this country. There's no rational basis to prevent science by eliminating control groups, which is exactly what we have here. That's that's who I represent. I represent the unvaccinated, the the individuals who are the control group. The only way we the only way we even know these numbers is because the control group exists. That we are able to do science because we can compare the health of those who have never received the product to the health of those who have received the product. You know, the 99.7% of people who have received one or more vaccines compared to the 0.26% of individuals who have never received the vaccine. And so that science, that basic understanding, I find absolutely resonates with everyone, whether they are pro-vax or whether they are anti-vax or vaccine aware, whatever the label, everyone understands this idea that you, you need a control group. And so, so that was a key point in our case that we submitted to the trial court in California. And we sued, we decided to sue the president of the United States because it's the president's vaccine program since 1960. The, uh, the president, the office of the president is responsible for, uh, for the whole thing. Uh, it goes to the president. It's a national security issue. Vaccines, uh, vaccine ingredients come from communist China as well. It's another factor to, to the case. A lot of people don't, don't know that, but we prove that in our case. And the, the, the district court, the trial court, didn't even look at our evidence. The trial court just dismissed the case instantly mm-hmm. on the grounds that we're not allowed to sue the president. They said, well, you, you got to sue somebody else, they said, other than the president, because they say it's a political question. How is it a political question whether to destroy our nation or exterminate a control group? It's just not. Political question is things like um, whether to make a declaration of war. Um, it's the, these. Uh, there's no there's no discretion for someone to eliminate an entire group of people. The courts need to step in and protect all Americans from the president's experiment, his grand experiment, which is called the National Vaccine Program. The president has empowered an army of government officials and private officials or private individuals to implement the vaccine agenda. And we all see this daily. And COVID has really brought it to the front. We've seen private hospitals pushing it. We've seen employers pushing it. We've seen local health departments pushing it. And they all push it because of the CDC recommendations and and it and which is a branch underneath the office of the president. So anyway, the point here is that we brought this case in district court and trial court and the judge dismissed it outright said you got to sue someone other than the president. So we appealed to the next highest court, which is the Ninth Circuit and the which is an appellate court that oversees California, Oregon, Washington and the appellate court um, declined to hear the case. And so now we are appealing directly to the United States Supreme Court to see if the Supreme Court is willing to weigh in on the issue of, and it's a tremendously interesting fundamental issue. The issue is, can litigants like the unvaccinated sue the president over this experiment, this medical experiment, of vaccination. 
which is, as our data shows, destroying the nation. It's kind of like if, if, you, if you saw a meteor heading directly to Earth and it was about to strike the United States and destroy the country, who would you sue? Would you sue a, or, or to whose attention would you bring this for not, stop, for not stopping the meteor? Would you sue a local school board? Say, school board, you need to stop this meteor. Never. Would you sue the CDC? And say, CDC, you need to stop this meteor. No, you don't. You, you go right to the top. That's what this is. So we're, we are making the point that our case is, is that fundamental. Because as surprising as it is, it's still at the end of the day, just math. You just see this trajectory. You see where it's going. You find the cause and you go, look, this is it. So, so this is our evidence. And it's presented now uh, before the United States Supreme Court. We're actually on parallel track. So we still have a Ninth Circuit appeal. It's a regular appeal where the Ninth Circuit has to give an opinion. And then we are, have a concurrent writ track, which goes right to the Supreme Court. So we're giving the authorities every opportunity, every opportunity to recognize this evidence and we've really gone out of our way to be nice, to be kind and to extend the offer because we're offering something that nobody else has, which is the unvaccinated survey. You know, we went out and gathered 1,482 unvaccinated Americans. Could you imagine if the CDC tried to do that? Could you imagine if the CDC started calling up households and saying, hi, we're from the CDC. We want to know if you're unvaccinated. I would doubt the CDC could get 100 people to participate in their survey <laughs> because people don't trust the CDC. The unvaccinated, I know these people. These are my people. They, they, they're not going to participate in a CDC study unless they know and respect and trust those who are conducting the study. We can assist with that. We're offering the government. You know, we're saying, check our data. You know, we want to work with you. We want to help. We want to study the unvaccinated because it shows this extraordinary health. We should be learning from the unvaccinated. We want to do the control group science. But for decades now, the government, federal government has refused to study the unvaccinated. They absolutely categorically admit they have never studied the unvaccinated and that they declined to do it. And they, they were forced, however, to do a white paper um, where they said, in case anybody, any private institution wants to try to study the unvaccinated, we're going to give you guidance on how to do it. And guidance means we're going to try to rig the system against the unvaccinated. So here's what their white paper said. White paper said, first, you need to exclude the majority of the unvaccinated because anybody who doesn't go to a major hospital regularly should be excluded. So they have to go to like a Kaiser or a Sutter Health, like a giant institution. Second, even as a, even from, from birth, they have to go to multiple well baby visits. Everybody knows what those well baby visits are. They're vaccination appointments that they go and you have to get berated by a doctor. And so what they're doing is they're trying to exclude any child that doesn't go to multiple doctor visits at a mainstream hospital, which is exclusively ill children, you know, children who have issues. And so they're, so they're trying to remove, so all of the parents who take, the all take their children to, you know, holistic doctors, naturopaths, and so forth, they all get excluded from the study. Hmm. 
So that is the CDC trying to rig the system. Even with that, even with that, they still will not publish any results because even when the CDC tries to rig the system, the results are still so damning against vaccination that they still can't publish it. That is how dramatic this difference is, which is exactly the point I began with, as, as I'm sure you recall, Michael, that we're talking about 4,000% differences. There's just no way to hide that. And so, and so it's so dramatic. It's just so, it's so offensive, the, 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 the difference. And there's nothing in the, in, that we know of that can account for such dramatic differences in health outcomes when you compare vaccinated to unvaccinated. It's not like there's any uh, diet you can do, like an Atkins diet, where you can improve your health by 4,000% or like, like, like all of a sudden you don't get cancer because you're on this diet or all of a sudden you don't get, you know, uh, you don't spontaneously develop a neurodevelopmental condition like epilepsy because you, you know, you are not eating um, it's carrots. <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's, it's just, there's just no study for that. But, but, the, but vaccines is clear because we have this control group study proving it with above 99% confidence. We have also the other two studies that were published in PubMed in 2020, uh, Dr. Thomas's study and Dr. Hooker's study. And those also confirm the unvaccinated exponentially healthier. And then, of course, you have the Moss and Pilot study, which was a couple years before that, which confirmed the same thing. So now we have four studies, all recent, and they all show the exact same thing. And they show what the, exactly what the parents are saying. You know, you talk to unvaccinated parents. And they tell you very clearly that their unvaccinated children are exponentially healthier than their vaccinated children. And, and these children are eating the same diets, live in the same house, same Wi-Fi, same everything, same genes. But the unvaccinated, usually it's the unvaccinated younger child and the vaccinated older child. And the vaccinated older child has all these issues, you know. But then, and so the parents learn, they're like, oh, well, we're not going to vaccinate our younger child. And then the unvaccinated, perfectly healthy. And it's always that way. It's never the opposite. It's, it's never that you have an older unvaccinated and a younger vaccinated. We've seen that never. Uh, with the, actually, one exception is um, in individuals who are uh, immunocompromised. You know, they're born with some genetic or chronic, some tremendous issue. And maybe it's because of trauma or something. And then... You know, so you might have an older unvaccinated. They're unvaccinated, but they were born ill, born terribly ill. So the, the, an immunocompromised individual. Individual. Other than that, other than that, the the, the paradigm fits. So, so that's staggering evidence. And another thing that we did in our study is a comparison. It's a Pearson correlation coefficient comparison. It's so interesting. So what it is is, and I'll, I'll make it super simple. Um, what you do is you look at the rate of increase in the vaccine schedule. As we all know, in the 80s, you got less vaccines than you get today. In the 80s, you got about 20 vaccines. And today, you get about 70 vaccines as, as a child. And so you can compare the rate of increase over time in the vaccine schedule to the rate of chronic illness increase over time. And then you can compare and see if those two rates are a match. If they both incline at the same rate, then you have a perfect correlation at 1.0. It's a scale of zero to one, one being a perfect correlation. And so we did that with vaccines. And what we found is that 
the match between vaccines, the rate of increase in vaccines and chronic illness is 0.99, a near perfect match, which is like saying, it's, it's like saying that if, if your doorbell rings, there's a 0.99 chance someone's at your door. Sure, it could have been an acorn that hit, hit your doorbell, but probably not. It's probably someone at your door. It's the exact same thing here. Any rational person would see this Pearson correlation coefficient and say, here, you've got, you know, it's, it's causal. And so, so that's what we're doing. That's what our case is doing. As a lawyer, my job is to get to causation. So that's what I'm showing. I'm showing that this is more than correlation. This is causation. And the best evidence of causation is the health of the unvaccinated. Well, th thank you for that, Greg. Uh, that's a, a great dissertation on the subject. And um, I mean, obviously, you've identified a smoking gun in terms of the, the chronic disease conditions that uh, Americans and, of course, you know, many of the Western nations are facing. Um, if you and I were pharmaceutical executives, this conversation, I think we would be rubbing our hands together with uh, great delight uh, because we have all these sick people that are going to be in need of our medications. And I believe uh, there's been some pr uh, press lately about a couple of drugs that Pfizer has been marketing with uh, improved sales uh, for bl blood thinners and blood anti-clotting agents, uh, which obviously are a result of the, the COVID vaccinations. And so you know, it really seems like these public health agencies, uh, even before their absolute abject uh, failure and mismanagement of the COVID situation, are either grossly influenced by the pharmaceutical industry uh, or are, you know, the, the puppets thereof, because these decisions clearly are not for the benefit of the population. They are the benefit for a select group of individuals within our population that are reaping massive profits from this sickness and disease. And, you know, it's interesting, and I've, I've gone through your information at length um, uh, for our original episode, and, and subsequently I've, I've shared it with many people. And it's interesting to see that the data... Uh, and the health outcomes of people prior to this onset of these max vaccination programs is far superior to what we have today. And, you know, your final comments there about the Pearson cor uh, correlation coefficients being at 0.99, I mean, we can literally track the the onset of the vaccination schedule and the increase in the the dosages or the frequency uh, or additional products added to that and the and the lockstep increase in these negative health outcomes and uh, and I, I, when you refer to these studies in the CDC I know that RFK Jr. also challenged the CDC to do a simple data analysis because they have the information there between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated and it's simply you know get your data analysis team to run some queries and come out with a simple data analysis from your, you know, terabytes of data that they must have, and they simply refuse. And so, you know, given the fact that they're sitting on all that data, I mean, you've done a superlative job in collecting the data, but the data already exists, and clearly they don't want anybody to see that. And it's interesting that you bring up the the restrictions that they impose upon uh, anyone who wishes to, I guess, obtain funding to do such a study, uh, which you know basically ties one hand behind your back and and uh, blinds out one of your eyes in terms of trying to come with uh, some, some reasonable uh, decisions there. And it's interesting that the marketing regarding vaccination 
and the the admonishment uh, of parents that choose not to vaccinate their children. And of course, you know, the, the as we see now with the COVID situation, you know, you must wear a mask to protect me or you must be vaccinated to protect me, even though I'm vaccinated. I mean, the, the argument simply doesn't hold water. And then when you add in you know, the, the, the health outcomes and the health status of the unvaccinated, it's clear, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are hazardous products that really have no benefit. And, and I know, and uh, again, we we're, we're, don't want to cover too much of the material that we previously covered, but, you know, there has not been a vaccine which has been safe or effective. And all of the, the, um, triumphs that the vaccine industry likes to pat themselves on the back for, you know, eradicating measles, smallpox, et cetera. These were sanitation issues. And of course, in the case of polio, you know, it was also the removal of DDT, which probably uh, increased the the pathogenicity of that enterovirus uh, poliomyelitis. It had nothing, nothing, to, nothing to do with the vaccine. And so, you know, and even I, you know, I have this discussion with my, with my mother and she said, well, you know, you, you got the measles, you had an attendance I had a very light uh, vaccination schedule, um, had the attenuated uh, measles vaccine, which was worthless. I got the measles. I was quite ill. Uh, however, my sister didn't. And my mother to this day claims that, you know, my sister was saved the, the, the problem because of um, uh, the vaccination that she received, which you know, I think she probably just was uh, maybe had a, uh, I was at a point where I had a lower immune system because of any number of reasons. And she was younger and didn't have that uh, situation. So she bypassed that. Um, you know, I've been a rather healthy individual for most of my life. And I would think I would attribute that to the, the lack of, uh, vaccinations. I did suffer with some, uh, childhood allergies and so forth, which I would imagine are directly related to, to those vaccinations. And, um, you know, I've really been a, a non-believer in allopathic medicine. I mean, I haven't, I've seen a, an allopathic doctor twice in uh, about 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, my, my health is, I think, directly attributed to the fact that I take care of myself. And, you know, as the old uh, adage, that I think it was Socrates that said, you know, let food be thy medicine. And, and if, you know, yeah. we, we see it again, we're sort of skipping forward now to the COVID era and you see these morbidly obese people with this face mask, which, you know, looks like a, a, a string bikini strapped across their face and their shopping cart is filled with garbage. And, you know, you yeah. just, you look at them and you shake your head. It's like, you know, that mask is the, is the, has the least benefit to your health outcome out of everything that right. you're doing. So it's, 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 an, yeah, it's an interesting situation. And, um, you know, I definitely, it's, comical. it's like, it's like looking at the clothes that people wore in the 1500s. You see men wearing what looks like ladies clothes in the 1500s and you just go, wow, that's just funny. And, yeah. and it's, uh, it's sort of the same, you know, you can imagine what it looks like in the, you, you know, just imagine being in the future and looking back at this time and you just see completely unhealthy people wearing, covering their faces, injecting themselves with these toxins and then claiming that natural healthy people are harming them it yeah, is like yes. the height is. Of, it's like the height of ignorance yeah yeah and of course you know there's been a number of researchers uh thomas cowan probably at the at the lead of that dr thomas cowan at the lead of that um you know challenging germ theory and you know i think we're at a point now where we need to redress some of our fundamental tenets of medicine because they simply aren't working for us. And, uh, you know, the, I would imagine that the train theory makes a lot more sense, you know, that a, that a healthy individual with a healthy microbiome 
consisting of viruses and bacteria, if everything is in balance, you are a robust, healthy individual. The moment that you that starts to be um, modified and degraded, mostly through your environmental conditions, what you're putting into your body, you're no longer a healthy individual. And of course, you know, every single injection that you take, you know, there, again, growing and growing evidence that none of these are, are safe and effective. Oh, Yes, you know, I I love I love that you're discussing the root as well of uh, of the terrain theory. I think that future doctors will be looking at the work of Cowan, for example, and incorporating it into their knowledge of how the immune system works and how. And and I think the the main area of growth for those doctors will be understanding that the people around you include the terrain. That's the missing link for the contagiousness factor because everyone recognizes that there can be a, um, a contagious effect when you're in an environment, you know, like you have a family, right? And they're all together and then everybody has this, everybody gets the same symptoms. Everybody gets the same and it seemed, and so logically you would think, well, there's a bug that's transferring to each individual. But I think what's happening is that the um, the terrain, that the energy that is throughout the whole uh, house or the whole, you know, like basically every person is a walking um, receiver and transmitter of energy and that, and that it doesn't end at your epidermis, at your skin, rather it can, continues to radiate out. And what you're radiating out is your terrain. Mm -hmm. And so when you're around these other individuals who are entering your terrain, you have now changed your and 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 we we know this not just um, biologically, but you know like through curling photography, for example, you can prove that there's this aura, this radiating factor. We also know this even in simple examples, like you know how when you walk into a room and you can just tell the vibe, or you could just tell if somebody's upset, um, you know, are very happy, and you can feel that instantly. Um, it's sort of it's sort of the same thing that we're we're tapping into something larger. And so I would say that that's where the terrain theory can really grow in recognizing that we are the terrain. Uh, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. So I, I did want to cover some of the, the legal basis behind some of these mandates that we're seeing being thrown around uh, by the, I, I would call them reckless administrations and public health agencies uh, across North America and likely the globe. Um, you know, just yesterday here in British Columbia, uh, the tyrants at the BC Health Service have issued a mandate that without proof of double COVID vaccinations, individuals be subject to limited entry to establishments other than essential services only. Um, obviously, as a means to coerce and um, pressure people into receiving these uh, experimental gene therapies. Um, there's obviously other many, many examples stateside. Um, what are your thoughts on these mandates? Yeah. Well, they all begin with the assumption that the social distancing, the masking, uh, et cetera, the, the lockdowns, they all begin with the assumption that they're helpful to public health, that there's data that support this idea that if you mask, you reduce transmission, that if you are social distancing, you reduce transmission. And therefore, by extension, that because we're not allowed to harm one another, through infectious disease, we're not allowed to spread infectious disease, that this is a uh, unallowable uh, technique. One of the um, 
precedence is TB, uh, tuberculosis. It's actually the most common of all the infectious diseases that there are. About 95%, if, if you go pre-COVID, about 95% of everything that public health departments did in terms of regulating infectious disease was TB. It's the, the thing that they're most familiar with. And so it kind of shows their logic. Um, and the way that TB works, at least here in, here in uh, California, is that um, if, you, if you test positive for, for tuberculosis, active tuberculosis, then they, you will get a call from the public health department because it's, it's required that the laboratory report TB results to the public health department. You don't get a, you get a say yes or no. And then, so you, so you get a phone call from the public health department. They say, okay, you've tested positive for TB. That means that you have a choice under California law. You can either um, take the TB medication, which is what 99% and above of all people do. They just take the medication and then uh, report to us that you're taking it. Um, so you have to, they, they basically assign an officer to you to make sure that you are taking the, the medication. And then you can retest. Um, or alternatively, you have the right to decline the medication. But if you decline the TB medication, then you have to isolate at home. You have to quarantine yourself and you can't go anywhere. And that, so that's the precedent. So that's how these public health officers think. And they, and they found that that approach is successful in uh, limiting TB. And so when you extend that to COVID-19, their approach makes sense in their worldview. And so it doesn't surprise me that they're doing these things like masks and lockdowns and um, requiring what they consider to be their COVID medication, which is the vaccine. And one has to challenge the underlying um, the underlying impetus for the, for the public health measure itself. So rather than say we have the right to decline a mask, which is very important, the first and foremost argument should be masks don't work. Masks do not help public health. Because in that context, in that scientific context, then the authorities are in a position mentally to accept the next point, which is we have the freedom to breathe. We have the freedom to decline masks. Because again, these authorities are working from this paradigm, this TB paradigm, where they would just, they will absolutely limit an individual's right. They, they really do. They see somebody with TB walking down the street. They see them as a spreader. It's like, for them, it's like spraying bullets. The idea of TB going throughout society. And so, and it, and, and they, you know, from their own textbooks, they look at their graphs about the control of TB and how this approach has been so successful. And, and so, so I think that's, that's the starting point. And which is why we find cases like, in America, cases like Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where the local health board was allowed to mandate a smallpox vaccine, because that's that was their worldview that this that if you wanted to control smallpox, you have to follow the majority public health argument, which is that small the smallpox vaccine prevents the transmission of smallpox throughout society and therefore will help save society. And so, of course, today. If you're a doctor and you tried to give the smallpox vaccine from 1905, you would be arrested uh, because it's it's absolute malpractice. That vaccine is so harmful and dangerous. And yet there you have it. The United States Supreme Court upheld its mandate for the reason that they're following this mainstream public health approach.
approach. And so that's been how things go for the last hundred years in America. And so what could change that? It has to be independent science. And, and this is this is where I get to um, the uh, Thomas Kuhn's book about scientific revolutions. Are you familiar with this, Michael? No, I have not heard that one. That's phenomenally interesting. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, MIT. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's a famous book and it shows how scientific paradigms change, how anytime there's a major field of science, that's just like, like a train on the tracks and no one can stop it, even though it's going in the wrong direction. This book looks at all of these scientific paradigms and says, if you want to change a system, a scientific train going one direction, you have to do the following. And then the following is it, that it, scientific systems only change from independent scientists. They never change from the institution itself. Secondly, they will set up parallel structures, meaning they just begin operating regardless of needing the consent of the majority, needing the funding of the majority. You cannot depend on that runaway train to help you. You just let the train go and just independently work on the solution, which is exactly what we are doing here with the control group. We, in, we are independent we are running our own parallel system of science, meaning we independently use U.S. census methods to independently look at our unvaccinated uh, population pool. And we are seeking, of course, to change the paradigm because we observe the data and the data shows us that vaccination is harmful. It is the opposite of public health. It is destroying public health as well as, of course, individual health. Vaccination is the worst medical decision that a person can make for their health. The very best medical decision a person can make is sustaining their natural immune system. That doesn't mean you can just do anything just because you're born natural. It doesn't mean you can eat Cheetos all day. Of course, you got to take care of yourself. You got to exercise. You know, you got to think positively. Probably got to do a lot of things that, that you do, Michael. Uh, tell me, what are the, some of the things that you do to, to keep your immune system strong? Well, it's, uh, you know, eating, eating organic whole foods, um, you know, the, the sort of the old adage of uh, the, the perimeter of the grocery store is where you should be focusing your efforts and everything in the, in the interior that's canned or boxed or has more than one ingredient is nothing that I uh, put into my basket as I wander through the store. And I think that's, you know, th those are words to live by. Uh, I, also, I also sort of a, a proponent of uh, much of what uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan espouses in terms of a higher fat uh, you know, low processed sugar, low processed carbs, uh, it served me well. Uh, you know, I have uh, plenty of energy and, and you know, I have zero need for an MD. So, I mean, it's, it's been working well for me thus far. And I think, yeah. that, you know, plenty of exercise this summer has been a little challenging up here because we've had uh, tremendous uh, uh, wildfire smoke in the air uh, for the last six or eight weeks. So kind of getting outside and exercising has been, has been difficult um, and probably deleterious to your health if you actually get out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's take, taking charge of your own, your own health um, and, and really it's, you know, it's quite simple. Once you make those adjustments into focusing on, on what really promotes your health, uh, you begin to feel, you know, what works and what doesn't. And if you kind of fall off track, um, you know, you, you notice quite quickly that your, your vitality declines. Oh yeah. That's, that's very well said. Um, there's a lot of people who are not able to eat, um, eat, uh, gluten and wheat you know, bread, um, have difficulties with sugars. And what you find is that those are also vaccine ingredients. 
yeasts, sugars. And so among the unvaccinated, go figure, they can eat freely. They don't, they don't have, have the same issues, which is just remarkable. I mean, it just shows, you know, that our bodies can. Now, that doesn't mean that, you, know, you can eat pies all day long, even if you're unvaccinated. But it does mean you can eat significantly more cake. <laughs> well, that's good news. That's good news. So what, what is what is the underlying legality of these mandates? And obviously, you know, we can't get you to comment on our situation here. Um, but, you know, we do about a quarter of the listeners are American based. And so, you know, filling filling in the information for them, you know, what what are the legality? I mean, obviously, there's difference between the federal, state and, and municipal or, or parish level. Yeah, the, the, the great thing is that when we get a court order in America that protects our rights, that upholds the right of the unvaccinated, that court order can instantly be taken into Canada and introduced into Canadian courts to protect Canadians as well. It's through the tool of uh, judicial notice, where courts in one jurisdiction will respect the orders of other jurisdictions. Um, respect in the sense of they are... Um, instructive. They are useful and relevant. Uh, it does not mean they're binding. It doesn't mean that if the court issues a, an order in America that it's going to bind a Canadian court, but it's very persuasive. And we've observed that, for example, with Portugal. There's a Portuguese court and that issued a ruling challenging the PCR test. And it was very useful to courts in, to courts in America. And so we expect the same thing here. Uh, if my case can prevail at the United States Supreme Court, it will instantly affect Canada. There will be Canadian lawyers, I know several of them, who will introduce it instantly in Canadian courts in order to protect Canada as well, our, okay. our brothers in Canada. Well, that, that's excellent. And, and I'm involved with a, a case with Rocco Galati, a constitutional challenge. Um, my, my, yeah, my challenge specifically is to the, is the travel mandate. Uh, but I believe that there's uh, more and more plaintiffs sidecarring onto that, uh, that action um, which I think is to be released here this week and, and will most likely now also include something on the vaccine mandates. So, um, and that's interesting. I didn't know that. So the, the, these then become instructive uh, as a precedent, these, these decisions in other jurisdictions. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the, they, they're instructive because of the credibility of the institution issuing them. So for example, any state Supreme Court that issues a court order is going to be instructive for Canada. Uh, and of course, the United States Supreme Court is going to be instructive. But as for lower court orders, like, for example, there was a judge in um, Louisiana who just issued an order um, protecting students from vaccine mandates and PCR tests. And uh, it's great. I mean, it's a, gr it's a great order, but it's that would be an example of something that would not be uh, high enough to carry the weight to um, uh, instruct a Canadian court. They would find it persuasive and they could cite to it, but they're unlikely to be instructed by it. So, so and it's also a matter of, uh, of cumulative appreciation, meaning that the more of these court orders that exist, the more comfortable a court is gonna feel that they're not going out on a limb Courts don't like that. You know, they don't like to go out on a limb on issues. They want to be in line with where the society is. So, for example, uh, and, and their first and primary metric for that is what is the legislature saying? The legislature that represents the people, the legislature is banning vaccine passports and so forth. Well, then the court knows 
that they are in a jurisdiction that is supportive of this um, respect for individual rights. And so as lawyers, we've gotten really good during COVID at describing our rights, our right to privacy, bodily integrity, 14th Amendment, Fifth, Fifth Amendment, the right not to participate in experiments. We're, we're, we're really good at that. But the challenge is to, is to have a court agree to have a court adopt the language that we're using or adopt the citations, the scientific citations that we are presenting. Courts are very deferential to public health authorities and just to government in general. They don't want to change policies. They believe those are set by the legislature. The only exception is when you have a, um, is when you have a, a, just, a just a pure raw fact where just an, like an epidemiological fact where somebody's gonna get hurt unless the court intervenes in that specific situation, which is really the goal of what courts are supposed to do. So a lot of the lawyer's work is finding those cases at the outset, making sure that there's a strong fact pattern rather than just a general sort of scattershot challenge. So here, here in BC with this uh, up and coming mandate, which I'm assuming is, will be met with some level of legal challenges, uh, many of our healthcare workers um, are facing a choice between their medical freedom and their health and earning a living and providing for their family. And, uh, you know, the last several days here, I've been um, messaged by at least half a dozen nurses who are up in arms as to, you know, they're, and they're, they're, they're educated, caring, uh, compassionate people that love their job, they love helping people, and here they're being faced with a decision to, you know, damage their own health to continue their their practice and their vocation. Um, you know, what legal recourse do individuals have uh, faced with such a choice? Mm, it is a very difficult, very difficult situation. Um, the first place to go is in the law itself. So you look at the health officer's uh, ordinance or dictate their, their order that they're putting out. And then you see where are the exceptions in every health order that will have some form of exception, meaning you can get a health exception or a religious exception, often called a religious exemption. And so, so, so that's a starting point. Another point to look at in America, for example, is the emergency use authorization status. So for example, let's say you decline a vaccine and they say, well, you have to take a PCR test. Well, every PCR test is EUA, emergency use authorization, meaning it cannot be mandated. So, so here you have an example where you can at least survive on the exceptions for now and try to survive until we can win in court. You know, basically the idea is buy time, you know, just, just try, try to survive as a, you know, a natural individual until we, we can prevail in court to protect everyone's rights. And the precedent for that is uh, the lockdowns. So in March 2020, April 2020, when all the lockdowns started, there were so many cases filed in court challenging the lockdowns and every single case lost, every one. And then fast forward about six, eight months, and then all these cases started winning and the lockdowns were getting struck down. Even Governor Newsom was losing, Governor Cuomo was losing, these liberal governors were all losing their cases for the reason that the public had finally had enough. It's gonna be the same thing with the vaccine, but we're in like month two right now of that little eighth month process, or, or hopefully it'll be shorter this time, but, but we'll see. Um, 
And the thing is that I'm, I'm sure you remember in March of 2020, nobody knew what COVID was. Yeah, of so people were washing their hands. And like it was this whole big, you know, people were uh, being careful with packages that came to the door. We'd be like, oh, well, let's maybe leave it out in the sun, you know? Um, and, but then, you know, fast forward a couple months and you'd get a package, just bring it right in the house. Like nobody cared, right? Yeah, and so yeah. that was the thing about, um, uh, about the lockdowns, that it just took a matter of time before the public finally got fed up with it. It's the same thing with these these vaccines. So you see more and more people. There's already, of course, the entrenched interest, people who would just never get a vaccine. Then there's a lot of people who got one vaccine, got hurt, or got two vaccines. Now they're realizing they need a third, fourth, fifth booster, right? Just like a DTaP, you get six. Um, They're like, wait, I didn't sign up for that. And so so they're starting to wake up. So the more, so it's like this, it's almost like a like a needle or like a gauge. And you can just see once you reach this tipping point, then the public health authorities recognize that they cannot sustain their public health measures. And when you actually read what public health authorities publish about their public health measures, they are so sensitive to public opinion. They, they, they don't want to ever try to do something that they think they cannot enforce. And they're total numbers people, meaning they're not trying to vaccinate everyone. There's, for them, it's just a percentage. You know, they say they are, but they're really not. They're, they're just, for them, it's just like targets. It's just numbers. They're just trying to reach a certain threshold. And so, so let, let me just jump in there. And it's just, just to go back to, to a point here, it, you know, a, our health mandate here, vaccine mandate, I shouldn't call it a health mandate. Um, there are no exemptions, religious or medical. So they've obviously had their legal department, some, some legal eagles have uh, identified those potential loopholes that people may exploit. And, you know, which, which I find a little shocking because clearly, you know, the, the a religious exemption is probably a constitutional violation where, you know, my, you know, if I'm a Jehovah Witness, for instance, so you've now persecuted me for my religious beliefs and I can no longer go to the theater or to a gym or to a restaurant because of my religious beliefs. I, I cannot imagine that that is a constitutional judgment. And the same thing on the medical side, if I have a... Um, an allergy to one of these ingredients uh, or a history of adverse reactions from any other vaccinations, you're now forcing me to risk my health and well-being in order for me to go arrest to a restaurant. I mean, that I cannot see how that is a, a legal term. It, it, it's uh, it's shocking to me. It is shocking. Yeah, it was addressed by the United States Supreme Court in 1905 in the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. And the which is the most famous case on mandatory vaccination anywhere in the world. Okay. It's called the Jacobson case. And there, the United States Supreme Court said, you've got that the government has to provide a medical exemption. So that's been American law for over 120 years or 115 years. And so I would think that the same applies in Canada, that the Canadian authorities are required to provide a medical exemption. As for religious exemption, the analysis is different. For religion, as long as the law is of general applicability in America, meaning that everyone is forced to take the vaccine, it's not like they're discriminating against people because of their race or gender or anything like that, then they say that it only needs to be a rational law that has a government interest. And so the... Uh, so religious challenges have not been successful to the 
to vaccine mandates, but medical exemptions have always been successful. For 120 years, you always get a medical exemption, but religion has not been as strong an argument in courts for the reason that unless the law targets a specific group of people, a specific religion, they're just gonna say, look, we're, you know, we're, we're allowed to do this. One of the famous cases on this in America was the Employment uh, Division versus Smith case, where there were these Native American Indians and part of their procedure, uh, not procedure, their uh, ritual, uh, was to smoke peyote at their uh, ceremonies. And the government outlawed smoking peyote for obvious reasons. And the, um, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's good to outlaw peyote. I'm just saying that, that, that from the government's perspective, that's what, what they would do. Um, and the, uh, the court, in an opinion penned by Scalia, if I recall, um, said that because the law is of general applicability, meaning it didn't target the Native American Indians, no one's allowed to smoke peyote. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Because it's of general applicability, it's lawful. Okay. And then how does the 14th Amendment uh, apply to, the, to these highly coercive vaccine incentive programs or mandates? Or does it? It does. Absolutely. Yeah, the 14th Amendment is the primary amendment um, it says that individuals have a right to bodily integrity. They must be treated with uh, equal protection of the laws. So the 14th Amendment is sort of this catch-all liberty um, clause in the United States Constitution. And it is the main amendment cited by the court for the most famous cases that um, uphold informed consent. For example, the Cruzon case in 1990 or the Harper case also decided concurrently in 1990. Those U.S. Supreme Court cases said that you have a 14th Amendment right to decline medication. So that would apply in these cases then, unless the Constitution of America no longer applies. That, yes. See, that's that's what we're arguing. <laughs> that there's this clear line of precedent where we've always had the right to decline medication. And the only exception for this thing is vaccines. It's like vaccines get some special pass. They get like their own little green pass, right? Ironically. And they get to pass through the courts where the courts don't apply the same level of scrutiny. Uh, for example, um, if you are admitted, if a patient is admitted to a psychiatric hospital and they want to decline a, um, a drug, like let's say a, they want a, an antipsychotic, then the, it's the, the government has the burden to prove that um, the drug is going to be helpful for this patient and that the patient is going to be a danger to themselves or others if they don't take the drug. And so, and it's this standard, this uh, clear, it's a clear and convincing evidence standard. So very high. So the government has this hard burden that they have to prove on an individual basis. So for example, the government can't say everyone's got to take the drug. That would be unconstitutional. They, they have to say, okay, John Smith, because he has X, Y, and Z conditions, has to take this drug as recommended by his doctor. Here's a court order specific to John Smith. That is the standard for a psychiatric patient or a prisoner. So basically prisoners have better rights than us free citizens on the issue of vaccination. Hmm. Meaning we have less rights than prisoners. On the vaccine issue, we're worse than prisoners. That is the current state of law. And, and the reason why is because it all starts with this paradigm that vaccines help society. And it's a flawed paradigm from that one error 
comes so many other errors. And it's just like in life. You know, when somebody makes a bad choice or has bad information, it will infect so much of their analysis. Just one piece of bad information. You can imagine it in all sorts of things where if you, um, you know, let's say that, you know, you make one decision to, well, anyway, it, I, I, mean, I could go into other examples, but the point is that challenging public health, challenging the idea that vaccines help public health is the foundation for achieving our freedom in the future. So any lawsuits that go just on religion or just on liberty probably will lose because they've been losing for a hundred years. We have to challenge the foundational science. We have to present science that shows vaccines harm public health. And that's where my control group case is shining. We are the largest study of the unvaccinated that we know of in the world. Very interesting. And then am I correct in my understanding that the FDA disclosure statement for declining these emergency use vaccines uh, violates federal law? Well, the FDA recently approved the Pfizer vaccine for ages 16 and over. And they renamed the vaccine Comirnaty. And that approval applies to new production. So anything on the assembly line, the vaccine assembly line, that's labeled Comirnaty is going to be um, approved by the FDA for age 16 and over. Anything that's already sitting in the pharmacies labeled Pfizer uh, uh, BioNTech, that, that vaccine, that's still EUA, meaning that it cannot be mandated. Um, and so whether Comirnaty can actually be mandated, that hasn't been litigated yet. But the point, uh, but I think your question is. No. Okay, we're back. Okay. So your question is, did the FDA violate its own rules in approving the EUA vaccine? And yes. the answer is yes for the EUA itself, because the EUA can only be issued if there's no alternative treatment. And as every integrative doctor knows, they're having tremendous success with ivermectin and also HCQ. In fact, ivermectin is now curing India. And so what you have is a situation where the FDA is not respecting the medical outcomes, superior medical outcomes of other, of other countries and also of patients within, within this country. So the EUA should have never been issued even in the first place. And then secondly, the um, the approval, which is separate from the EUA of the vaccine for, for use in the general population above 16, uh, that's for the Pfizer vaccine, that, that approval, um, I'm looking into that now as to whether it violated their own rules. For example, was a public hearing required prior to, now not that the FDA would listen to us anyway, but was a public hearing required? So was there, for example, a citizen's petition and is the um, is the vaccine uh, approval process something that requires a public hearing in the first place under the uh, 
particular public health act. So anyway, um, it's a, something something that is likely to be the subject of litigation very soon. And of course, it's it's interesting to note that the approval has been given based on their original data of 40,000 some odd participants, uh, obviously, which is 50-50 between placebo and uh, vaccine dose, and mm -hmm. seems to completely negate the last eight months of data, uh, where obviously we have a tremendous level of uh, injury that's been reported to the virus system. And that to me is, is uh, defies logic and reason that, you know, given this much more robust data set, we're still looking at something from, you know, nearly a year ago now. Exactly. It, it just goes to show that the FDA is, it has this tunnel vision on approved clinical trials, and they're not looking at the, uh, what's happening in, in the real world. And also there's some new insights in from the, um, there's some new insights from this FDA uh, product insert. And the, those insights on that, on that data are going to be published very soon. So folks can go to physiciansforinformedconsent.org and we will be updating our, um, our fact sheet on the Pfizer vaccine so people can see that, that the highlights of that data. Okay, excellent. And we, we hear many of the, the freedom fighters across uh, both our great nations uh, referring to the Nuremberg Code. And, you know, obviously the, the first tenant of that code is being violated. Does this code, in fact, bear any weight? And uh, are the purveyors of these mRNA products in violation of the Nuremberg Code? Wow, that is such an important question. It's a weighty question, you know, the, the Nuremberg, uh, you know, you think about Nuremberg, you know, and these Nazi war criminals on trial, and then they were hanging in the gallows. Like that's the gravamen of what you're discussing here. Ooh. Yeah, it's going to take a, um, a real awakening among the public to realize that that's what vaccines are doing. I mean, that would be like a, uh, that, I think that would take whistleblowers, you know, that would take, um, you know, Pfizer scientists coming out and saying, we know this is causing infertility. We know this is causing tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths. And we buried the evidence and our executives knew it. Then that's that Nuremberg territory. Well, I mean, we uh, in the meantime, we, we, courts are not extending uh, Nuremberg's prohibition on human experimentation to vaccines because they don't consider it to be a form of experimentation. They have completely different. It's like they're working in their own little world where as long as the FDA approves something, then it's not an experiment. Uh, so we're, we're back in that uh, nomenclature of safe and effective as being the accepted paradigm. And, uh, you know, pity those who would question that uh, narrative. Uh, even though, you know, as we spent the last hour here discussing, you know, that is absolutely the case. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that I, so I, that, I think, I mean, I think this is another example, Michael, where you'll find that you're on the right side of history and history will prove you right. But you're also, you know, five, 10 years ahead of the curve or, right. or uh, maybe less, you know, maybe maybe this does accelerate faster. And, you know, we see the how these injuries manifest. There's certainly some doctors now who are saying that these COVID vaccine injuries are going to manifest in two to five years, you know? So, yeah. Well, of course, so we have uh, Dr. Michael Yaden, former VP at Pfizer, 
uh, ringing the alarm bell. We have uh, Dr. Bob Malone, the original inventor of these mRNA vaccines, both who are are shouting uh, caution. And, uh, you know, Yaden calls he's a bioterrorist weapon. I mean, that may be a little salacious, but, uh, you know, we'll see. And, and certainly uh, this, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens here as uh, North America moves into fall and winter and decreased sunlight levels and a typical flu season to see if we're going to see some of this pathogenic priming and the antibody dependent enhancement of these uh, gene therapies. And, you know, we, we may be in for a very dark winter as uh, uh, Biden put uh, the last the last time here, right? So, Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so intense. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting the sunlight and vitamin D issue. That's important for listeners to to remember that vitamin D is very helpful to protect your immune system as we uh, as we enter this, uh, you know, decrease sunlight. Um, There's a precedent for this uh, hunting down of the of natural, the unvaccinated. And the precedent comes from. the Black Plague. <laughs> Back at long in uh, it's so the Black Plague was uh, from the 14th century, around 1348. This was the height of the Black Plague, and in and it struck Europe big time, and about half of the entire population of Europe died in the Black Plague. I mean, it's an absolute scourge upon the memory, our you know collective consciousness, and the. Uh, the thing is that while the Black Plague was raging, um, people really wanted someone to blame. It was the only way they could cope with, with life and their own suffering was to blame someone. And so they found someone to blame. What happened was um, there was a huge uh, campaign to blame the Jews. And so some Jews were captured, tortured, and made to confess that they had poisoned the wells in Europe. They were to to depopulate. And this spread, it was called, if you look at history books, it's called blood libel. It spread all throughout Europe. And so you had this situation where Europeans were chasing down and murdering Jews, in some cases burning them alive. And it was an absolute genocide, an absolute atrocity. And so Jews ended up fleeing um, their home countries in Europe and they were fleeing into remote areas like wilderness areas. They were really fleeing for their lives. And then one king, I read this in the New York times, uh, one, one king, a Polish king named King Casimir, um, he offered safe haven to the Jews. (laughs) And so and same with a neighboring country of Lithuania, because they had a connection, the king, and also the a princess in Lithuania. Anyway, uh, the, the point here is that 90% of Jews today, according to the New York Times, can trace their lineage to Poland because of this one great king, this one executive who stood up and said, come to Poland, I will protect you. It's And it makes it so makes me think of the unvaccinated, you know, these natural people who get blamed for, you know, poisoning the well. And it's obvious that the Jews did not poison the well to spread the Black Plague. I mean, my goodness, it started in, you know, China and in the, in the Gobi Desert and then navigated across the world into Europe. And um, 
But there you have it. That's the power of blame, the power of accusation. And it's a deep, deep paradigm. And so I think that as a society, if we're going to really address the root cause of our issue, it's probably blame. Interesting. You know, there, there is some recent evidence to indicate that uh, the Black Plague may have been as a result of an extraterrestrial impact. Um, there, there are, wow. there are, yeah, there's, there's some comments about seeing a flash in the sky and that there was uh, aerosols in the air. And so whether that was potentially a foreign bacteria or virus that entered the earth that obviously no one had immunity to, or if we look at more of a terrain theory, that there was simply an environment from these uh, noxious gases or substances in the air that were causing people to, uh, their health to decline. And obviously once uh, the health begins to decline, you know, you're more susceptible to everything. And uh, there, there's uh, some, some interesting research along those lines, which uh, you may want to uh, peek into. That's fascinating. Does it, where was the, um, where was the fallen star? Uh, so interesting that you, it was sort of in that uh, Siberia Mongol desert, uh, sort of in the east. Uh, so that would also uh, follow that same path that if the, the, the transit of that pathogen potentially came from China, uh, that would you know, maybe the impact area. So it's interesting. Yeah, that would be that would rewrite the history books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on a, on a back to sort of the legal um, uh, terminology here, um, the term unavoidably unsafe is something that yeah. I uh, dug out of your, your paperwork. And I think that's something that maybe we should touch base on in relation to the vaccines. Sure. Yeah. It comes from the case of Bruschewitz versus Wyeth from 2011, a United States Supreme Court case where um, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion in that case. And he had to identify that vaccines are put in the same category as chainsaws and dynamite. They are unavoidably unsafe. It doesn't matter how, you know, the, there's just no way to use a chainsaw or dynamite without the potential for harm. Same thing with vaccines. It's just inherent in the product itself. It's going to harm some people. And so they say these are, quote, unavoidably unsafe products. It doesn't matter how well you design dynamite going to harm somebody it's, it's designed it's designed to blow up so yeah i mean at some point uh if you're not handling it properly or you're in too close a proximity you're going to be injured right so so uh in our case in our federal court case we we identify the vaccines are unavoidably unsafe and it was actually that label formed our null hypothesis for our entire study we didn't start with the presumption that vaccines are safe we started with the null hypothesis that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And so the only question for us to answer was, how unsafe are they? How many people do they harm? And that's where we got our number, that they are harming approximately uh, 60 to 80% of the entire population is harmed by vaccines. Interesting. So now on the the VAERS system reporting, which uh, you know we touch base on in relation to the FDA approval, uh, many of my guests that I've had on have referenced the uh, 2010 Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare study, which indicates that somewhere between one and ten percent of adverse vaccine reactions are documented. Uh, do you agree with those findings? And can you comment on what your research has uh, indicated or discovered along those lines? Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, I do agree with those findings. And I think that VAERS, because it's passive 
surveillance, meaning that people are, are not, um, uh, doctors are not forced to report vaccine injuries to VAERS. There's no penalty if they don't, because it's this passive system. Um, it has no monitoring. It has no, no checks and balances to make sure that reporting happens. So the only way you ever know if somebody, if, if uh, the actual number of vaccine injuries is if you compare some, some other metric. And so this has been done, this, this estimate. So for example, it was done in the case of, um, of uh, seizures from measles, because there's another data set and you can compare the background rate of how many MMR, what the rate is from MMR causing seizures to what's in VAERS, and then you know what the underreporting rate is. And so this was published by Physicians for Informed Consent. Again, physiciansforinformedconsent.org. We're super nerdy on this like official government data where we just, you know, we're basically using the government's stuff, right? So, so there you can find a metric where it confirms the underreporting rates. And yeah, the VAERS, VAERS fails 99% of the time, meaning that they only capture about 1% of vaccine injuries. That is an absolute failure of accounting. Could you imagine if there was anything in your life where you failed 99% of the time to do accounting? Imagine you failed in your tax accounting 99% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I only have $10 to report IRS. They would say, yeah, okay. So yeah, I believe you'd go to jail for that. But when it's the government, they're, they get away with it. So, and it's, of course, it's intentional. They know what they're doing. They're not, they didn't, they accidentally fail 99% of the time. It's intentional. For sure. Now, this obviously raises a massively important question about the safety of these new mRNA gene therapy injections. You know, I think we're approaching 20,000 reported deaths in America at this point. Um, so you know, what is your interpretation of that safety data published to date? Perfect segue question, Michael. You were really good at this. Um, the, the answer is that we would again look to a different data set where we can compare what the VAERS rate is of, of deaths. You know, so you've got your 13,000, I think it's going on 14,000 number compared to the uh, number of deaths in some other database that's more accurate. And so, for example, uh, Thomas Renz highlighted a whistleblower who worked in the, uh, I think, a computing department who can access Medicare data. And all they did was a simple search of Medicare patients who have, uh, who had a death within, I think it was three days of getting the vaccine. Could have been death from anything. But the point is that you just have this independent metric that's not biased, doesn't require um, reporting, because of course the death is, is, uh, is always reported to Medicare compared to um, VAERS, which is passive. So Medicare is an active surveillance and Whereas VAERS uh, is passive. So, so in that system, you can find the answer, which goes back to one of the points that you correctly made earlier that these authorities are not tracking, they're not studying this stuff because they don't wanna publish it. I think they know behind the scenes. And so what in, in a better world in litigation, we would be, judges would not be dismissing our cases. They would be letting us get discovery. We would be looking behind the scenes at CDC emails and all this stuff. But they don't allow that. You know, it's such a flawed system. And there needs to be, you know, which is another problem. You know, I talked about blame being a root of a problem in society. Another problem is lack of transparency. 
Oops, do we, do we, you're frozen there again? No, we got you. Um, okay. and yeah, and that's, uh, so obviously then the, the next, uh, extension of that then is in terms of the efficacy data, which I, Israel seems to be publishing the most robust data sets on. And have you had a chance to review any of the efficacy data? I have, yes, from Israel. It's very interesting. In fact, I just submitted uh, two pieces of that Israeli data from August to the United States Supreme Court in another case that I'm working on, which is America's Frontline Doctors. I represent America's Frontline Doctors versus the University of California. And we are highlighting that students who have natural immunity must be respected, that natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity. That natural immunity is robust, it's lifelong, as in the case of SARS-CoV-1, for example. If you got SARS-CoV-1 17 years ago, you still have immunity today, as we can prove with your T-cells. And so it shows that natural immunity, If so, so because natural immunity is better, then the government should not be treating naturally immune people like second-class citizens, making them mask up, making them social distance, making them you know, get a swab up their nose twice a week. That's, it's completely unscientific to, and, and so, so that's our, that's our argument. We're challenging the science. We're, ch we're challenging this idea of the mainstream science narrative in order to, so one, and so once we've successfully presented our science, then the court is in the position to understand our rights, our right to bodily integrity, our 14th amendment. So that's a 14th amendment case right there. I cited the 14th Amendment right to bodily integrity. And that case is currently, I presented it to the United States Supreme Court uh, last week, I submitted it. And so hopefully the court will take the case. They the Supreme Court does not have to take the case. It's discretion. They can, they choose, they're very choosy which cases they take, which actually adds to their credibility. They're so sure. selective sure. that it's, um, so when they do take a case, it'll be it'll be national news if, if, if my case is accepted. And I hope it is. Well, that's good. And I'll, I'll... Experts, by the way, some of the top experts in, in, a, in a country. Uh, for example, one of our experts is uh, Michael Ladapo, MD. He's a professor at UCLA School of Medicine. And remember, I'm suing the UC. So their own employee <laughs> has gave me a declaration in my favor. I mean, that is, it just goes to show that this is where the scientific climate is, that you have dissent among the mainstream. The mainstream is trying to make it seem like there's this uniform science is settled narrative, but it's not true. Behind the scenes, there's tremendous debate. There's academic debate, scholarly debate, employees debating their employers. It is a, it's kind of how science is supposed to be. This constant, you know, exchange of ideas and dissent and it's refining. And so the mainstream narrative, this sort of one size fits all government approach is I understand why government does that because they have to make a decision. They have to make a choice. But that's the problem is that they, they're, the way that they make a choice is they try to choose for everyone. I, I would like for their choice to be simply the choice to make their own recommendations. Just, just recommend it and then, and then let, let the people decide. And then we can compare the outcomes, which is the beauty. Because when we compare two different groups of people, there's three or ten different groups of people, we can then know who has the most successful approach, which refines us and makes us better and healthier. Sure, and that's what we're finding with the unvaccinated. We look at the health of the unvaccinated. We should all be doing what the unvaccinated are doing. These are the healthiest people on the planet. 
So, so it's very exciting to research in this area, um, but there's this undercurrent of force and mandates that's coming from the government. So it makes life, makes life challenging for people who want to live inside of the control group. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's, that's interesting. And I'll be watching that case. Uh, uh, hopefully it does get accepted and, and you're successful because I think that will really be a landmark decision uh, for, you know, the population at large is health. Because if you, if you do have a natural immunity based on an antigen test, then there's no requirement for you to endanger yourself with a vaccine. And really from a government perspective, unless they are in league with the pharmaceutical companies, every single vaccine dose I don't have to pay for is less money out of the tax uh, treasury that I, or I can spend on more important things or other things, uh, or just not increase the, the national debt, uh, uh, you know, exponentially. Eventually. And the other, the other, exactly. the other, I, I would also add just, sure. um, just, uh, uh, really quickly on the antigen test part. Um, uh, the medical standard of care is that, um, you don't actually need to take a test to prove that you had COVID. Uh, it's the same thing with chickenpox, for example. Um, you don't need to take a titers test or anything to prove that you had chickenpox. It's enough just to go into your doctor and say, these were the symptoms I had. This is the time that I had it. And, and even if you have a picture, you know, of yourself with chicken pox, you know, so that, that's enough for a doctor to say that you had the chicken pox and that you're exempt from the varicella vaccine. And so it's the same thing with COVID. I mean, if you go and you say, you know, I live in this area where there was, you know, obviously America, there's COVID or Canada, there's COVID. And then you say, I lost my smell for a week. <laughs> you know, that should be enough. You shouldn't have to take a test. Right, right. And then there, there's a new paper. I'm not seeing. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Which was, I think, it's in preprint right now in the Lancet uh, regarding of transmission of uh, the, the COVID amongst uh, healthcare work, vaccinated healthcare workers, and it's showing that the vaccinated healthcare workers, and this was a study done in Vietnam, actually have 250 times the viral load uh, when compared to their unvaccinated counterparts. So this is something which, again, as this as the the real science is emerging and developing, you know what is what is the purpose of vaccinating our healthcare workers if they, unlike the unvaccinated, are now potentially super spreaders and these these dense viral loads, um, you know that's madness to me. I mean, there can only be downside for this. Oh, first off, thank you for citing that study. That's a preprint. That came out of Vietnam. That's that shows how up to speed you are on the current science literature, Michael. Uh, that's very good. Um, and yes, it sh it shows exactly that. You got a two hundred. I think it's two two hundred fifty one times the viral load. And the um, and what that shows is that that's what Delta variant is. It's ADE. And that one fact is so shocking and so damning of the vaccine that it should be enough to end the vaccine program overnight. This whole COVID vaccine, the, the idea that once you're vaccinated, you are more likely to be harmed by coronavirus, by the system's own standards, because you have this antibody dependent enhancement where you need the antibodies and you have to increase your viral load to fight this thing. And you just turn yourself into a fighter and it harms your immune system. And so therefore you would see the increases in things like hospitalizations among the vaccinated and so forth, which is exactly what the Israeli data yes. shows, which is what yes. you decided a couple of minutes ago. So, Michael, I applaud you for knowing this information and sharing it with your viewers because it's vital. Well, it's interesting. I mean, again, here in Canada, that we, your, our state-sponsored media 
you know, particularly the Communist Broadcasting Corp, uh, has has identified the unvaccinated as a tinderbox of infections and variant uh, development, which is, you know, just flies in the face of what the real science is. But unfortunately, you know, if we if we uh, utilize the old 80-20 rule, which seems to be very applicable these days, 80% of the population gobbles this up like pablum covered in uh, sugar and uh, continues to spread this misinformation amongst their their peer group and you know are now fingering you know they're they're emulating and absorbing this information and you know fingering the unvaccinated as you know these problems which you know as we've identified in this episode I mean the the unvaccinated truly are it's almost like a firebreak of deciduous trees amongst a bunch of conifers where this the spread will be rapid through these you know through that dry brush in the moment it gets to a fire break it's going to stop and and without these unvaccinated individuals you know what do we have left i mean with, without these natural humans in their in their natural state number one there is no control group as you say to sort of have iterative processes to refine our treatments but you know we could be in in the jeopardy of potentially modifying all of humanity to the point where something comes along which is more virulent than uh, the Wuhan flu and wipes everyone out. Oh, exactly. You know, the, and uh, there's a doctrine for that in science. It's called the uh, the biological alteration doctrine. And the idea is, so it's, a, it's like a medical legal thing. It's where um, the government cannot biologically alter an individual without their consent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw this, for example, in the sterilization cases. That's what government was doing. They were sterilizing certain individuals that they considered to be not desirable for the gene pool. This was, you know, decades ago. And the question was, is the government allowed to do these biological alterations? The obvious answer is no. But for some reason, when it comes to this mRNA gene therapy, they claim that it doesn't change your DNA. And so they're trying to avoid the effect of that biological alteration um, precedent. And of course, lawyers like myself are calling them out on it. You know, we directly cite, yeah, thank you. Uh, We directly cite biological alteration in our complaint and say the government is not allowed to do this and this is what's happening. And the, uh, the effect of vaccines is that it alters your immune system. And we're seeing it alters your immune system so much more as we're learning with this emerging data about spike proteins lodging in the placenta, for example, and in the ovaries. ovaries. It's so sad. These women are having miscarriages and it's just, you know, how many more people have to be injured before society is willing to learn the lesson. And the lesson is nature works. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another important uh, fact that we need to bring out and, and have people understand is the ideology behind informed consent and the legal framework that enshrines this principle. Because really, we're in a point now where with this coercion and the misrepresentation of facts, uh, or as our dishonorable prime minister has said, the best vaccine for you is the first vaccine which is offered to you. I mean, and this this is just you know a, a, a pathetic you know uh, ex, you know explanation. And again, you know, one of these main primary tenets of modern medicine is informed consent. Yeah, informed consent is fundamental. It is inherent to the individual. We exercise informed consent on a daily basis to thousands of things that are offered to us uh, commercially, you know, um, ask your doctor about, <laughs> you know, this, it's constant, this constant barrage of products that 
the industry is trying to, you know, get into us and get us to accept. And so it's this, it's this inherent thing that we're doing in order to protect ourselves and express ourselves in our bodily integrity and also our free expression. And so the, the idea that government can take away informed consent is also an encroaching legal theory as well. You know, you see some FDA documents where they claim that they can waive informed consent on behalf of a patient. If or sorry, the doctor for the patient can waive informed consent, they have this whole IRB procedure to do it. If they consider that the patient should not need to know this information. And secondly, that the product is going to have a clear benefit to the patient. And so it's their procedure for waiving informed consent. So, so hang on, hang on, hang on. So yeah. the, the doctor feels that the, pace, the patient doesn't need to knew, know that information. And what is that determination based on? Yeah, uh, it's based on the, gosh, you know, I'd have to reread that FDA document to see what that's based on. And, uh, but if I recall, it is that the patient um, lacks the sophistication to know what the therapy would or wouldn't do. And part of that relates to the fact that the experimentation is, uh, the therapy is experimental, that it's this new, you know, it's new, there's not a bunch of data on it. And so, so the doctor is inserting their judgment they're more reasoned and better scientific judgment for the patient. That's the FDA's logic. Okay. And are, are you familiar with the, the concept of a shifting baseline syndrome? No. So there, there's a uh, quite a renowned fishery scientist out of the University of British Columbia, Dr. Pauly, who's coined this term, a shifting baseline, which essentially is that with each successive generation or, or class of scientists that, that are produced uh, annually or, or over a period of time, that they are looking at the world with their own eyes and they forget in, the sort of, in, in terms of fisheries, specifically to the abundance. So 30 years ago, when I'm looking at a system, I expect to see so many individuals within that population. 30 years later, as that population is denuded, as a scientist, I look at it and say, well, it's not that bad. You know, we, there's, still some, there's still some fish here. And so the concept of shifting baseline syndrome seems to me to be we're bearing witness to its application on informed consent. Whereas you've just highlighted with this, uh, this FDA statement, a doctor maybe 10 years ago or even two years ago may have had a different level of uh, informed consent requirement compared to today where somehow we've, we've obfuscated what that requirement is and the doctors are able to get away with informing the patient less than what they had to previously. Wow, that's... I like that. I like that. I'm going to use that. Yeah. So the, it's, it makes perfect sense. The baseline is the paradigm that applied at the particular time. And then later on, the doctor, based on now what's incomplete data, is making judgments because the new baseline lacks the full data set. Yes. It's exactly what's happening. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, and, 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 the, and the trend of where the lack of data goes, it goes toward whatever industry is promoting. So it favors the drug industry. That that paradigm favors favors the drug industry. So, um, wow, uh, thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. And and it seems, you know, that the the rabid left, which uh, seemingly pervades our society to a great degree these days, seems to be in favor of these forced medical treatments and coercion, yeah. uh, much more so than their liberal moniker would indicate. I mean, where, where are we at with, with uh, you know, not that we want to get into the, the politics of the situation necessarily, but it certainly seems like the classic liberal philosophy, which would be more akin to pro-choice, has completely metamorphosed into tyrannical enforcement. Yeah, and I think that's what we're learning about the the left, especially the extreme left. It's that they're really their MO is hypocrisy. You know, you just take any of their positions and then you can flip it and find where the where the hypocrisy is. This of course is one of those examples with my body, my choice. Um, you know, and they're okay with, you know, aborting babies, but not with protecting the born. Uh and so and it, and it fits their scientific paradigm. And so the idea here is that whether you are subject to mandatory vaccination, the first and foremost factor is politics, actually. That's, that's what the data shows. Uh, for, for example, I'll, I'll give you a metric. In, uh, in California, we had this uh, mandatory vaccine law that came on the books in the year 2015. And, it, and the voting on that bill, the voting on the mandates, was right down party lines. It was all the Democrats voted for it, 92%, if I recall. And all of the Republicans voted against the mandates, uh, 86%, if I, if I recall. So it was just it was right down party lines. And that same thing we found in other states, no matter what state you go to, the Republicans support freedom and the Democrats support mandates. And so politics is absolutely central to um, the protection of rights today. Interesting. Interesting. And it's, it's a, a strange switch that's occurred where the, the left was once the, the, the party of the people or the philosophy of the people and the workers and the unions. And uh, we, we've completely uh, spun that around to now the, the left is really, you know, big tech, big pharma, big yeah. business. And the Republicans are, are it's essentially the, the people's party. You know, it's the, the blue collar salt of the earth folks that, uh, you know, may, may not be as educated, but through life experience, they understand the world in a much more uh, profound manner than these educated elites that have uh, massive school, uh, school fee debts and uh, you know are are preaching the garbage that they've been educated educated in uh, in school with oh yeah yeah i you know i have firsthand experience with that i know what it's like to go through the system and be indoctrinated i went to a university of california college ucla and you know came out and voted liberal i think i voted for bill clinton and uh i just didn't know you know I just and I think that's part of the growth journey. And so I definitely, I'm a conservative today. I, I appreciate individuals' journeys. I think that there's so many people on the left who really do mean well. And one of our jobs as, um, as informers is to let them know that there is there's space for them to grow and to grow in personal responsibility to grow into science that doesn't depend on hypocrisy and harming nature, that we can we can achieve harmony and balance. And uh, and I think that we can find common ground on really 
fundamental things like we all want to protect children. Sure. And when we see children being harmed, then it bring, you know, it's it's a way that we kind of come together and we rally together and say, okay, let's let's stop this. And so I think that's going to be the point for the left. Once they realize that children are being harmed, pregnant women are being harmed. I think another thing that is going to be a tipping point for the left is uh, the vaccine passports. I think many of them are just going to say, I did not sign up for this. This is like, this is papers, please. And so it's, I think it's just a matter of time. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. And, um, you know, as as we get get into the conclusion here of our chat today, um, one of the, you know, sort of fundamental uh, issues we've been dealing with are these mandatory vaccine mandates or coming vaccine passports. What's your message to people? How can they push back against this? How can they resist? Uh, and what actions can they take to um, overcome this obstacle? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the number one thing that protects rights is people not complying with the mandates. Uh, we're seeing that uh, relying on exceptions like religious exceptions just empowers the system to continue to force this on on employees. I, I understand why people do religious exemptions and I've helped people with them. It's just that it's really a band-aid. It is not a solution to what's going on. And um, the system is just going to keep pushing and pushing until they can take more and more. And I might give the precedent of marijuana dispensaries in California. Um, the precedent is that uh, obviously, the government banned marijuana back in the uh, in the in the aughts, around uh, 2000. Uh, marijuana was not legal in California. It only became legal later. So, in the time when marijuana was illegal in California, there were all of these dispensaries all throughout California. And whenever the government tried to shut down one of them, ten more would pop up. <laughs> and so, every time they tried to shut something down, it had the opposite effect. It emboldened the dispensaries to grow because they absolutely categorically resisted the government tyranny of banning a plant, right? Banning nature, a natural plant. And so I think the same phenomenon is happening today. And we're starting to see this with people posting about their own jobs, you know, say, hey, I, uh, I work at an auto mechanic shop and the boss tried to mandate the COVID vaccine. We all threatened to walk out. And the next day, there's no there's no mandate. It's because when people stick together, we're strong together. We are weak individually. Yeah, and I've been, uh, you know, getting back to that conversation that I've had with the nurses. That's been my message to them is to assemble all the uh, people that are in opposition and all the people who may have been coerced into getting a vaccine uh, but are still pro-choice, get all those people out of the hospital, onto the front line of the hospital and demand that this ends. And when the healthcare system comes to a grinding halt because the nurses are all over the country, are out in the front line of the hospital demanding action, it ends. You know, the, 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 the power rests in the people. You know, the, the, we are still the many and the few draconian authorities cannot control the masses. That's, that's the fundamental tenet of life. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it reminds me of this great quote from the United States Supreme Court in a case called Norton versus Shelby. It's just, it's one sentence, but I'll, I'll read it to you. It's from 1886. It says, an unconstitutional act is not law. 
It confers no rights, it imposes no duties, affords no protection, it creates no office. It is in legal contemplation, as inoperative as though it had never been passed. That is the United States Supreme Court saying that when the government itself does something unconstitutional, you can what? Ignore it? So go figure. So there's this built-in um, political resistance into our law itself. Now, sometimes that doesn't look very easy, as Rosa Parks knew, right? As Harriet Tubman knew. They were absolutely acting within their law and morals. And law and morals absolutely vindicated those brave women. And it's the same thing today. History will be on our side, but there might be some Harriet Tubman moments, some Rosa Parks moments where, you know, you are arrested or you are, you know, um, penalized in, in, in some manner. So, but that's what, so that's the history of civil rights. It's, it's not easy. Sure. Sure. And then where do you recommend people acquire and research information surrounding this subject? First and foremost, that would be Physicians for Informed Consent is an excellent source for conventional information that you can share with people who are just waking up to vaccine risk and vaccine danger. Uh, Physicians for Informed Consent focuses on the most authoritative citations. So all of our citations are like CDC, FDA, et cetera. And so it's essentially saying here, if we're all working from this paradigm of government data, well, let's look at this and this and this. And so to, to emphasize the need, the need for choice. And then the doctors, the individual doctors coming out and speaking about the, the risks, America's Frontline Doctors is a, another great resource, especially on the, on the COVID vaccine and COVID generally. And Michael, thank you for the excellent work that you're doing to share information with, with viewers because folks who come right here for, for current info too. Yeah, beautiful. And I know that you're a man of faith, Greg. Is there a, uh, a verse or a passage that you'd like to share with the listeners uh, before we close? Sure, thanks. Yeah, Jeremiah 29, 11, where I know the plans I have for you. Well, that's sweet and concise, sir. <laughs> that's it's, fantastic. It's, 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 where, it's where the Lord goes on to say that, that it's, the plans are not to harm you, but the plans are to protect you. And the moment that we get into harmony with the Lord, then our future is really good. And so I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for this, for this future in this country, for the future in the world, that we are going to have this, this great awakening of individuals coming and restoring some of the old foundations, foundations of constitution, foundations of natural health. I think the future is very bright. And our grandchildren, our natural unvaccinated grandchildren will be playing in a beautiful world. That's, that's what I envision. Fantastic, sir. Well, I, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and certainly the, the world desperately needs more freedom fighters and, and uh, folks like you at the front lines pushing back against this uh, tyranny. And as you say, when, when we all stand um, shoulder to shoulder as brothers and sisters in true harmony, uh, that is when we'll achieve our true potential here. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. You have a great day and we'll be in touch in the future. Uh, God bless and, and uh, best of luck with your uh, court proceedings. Thank you. God bless. Thank, thank you, sir.